Ladies and gentlemen, damas y caballeros, welcome back to El Cyber Gigante Podcast. Today's podcast will be the second part of the story of the first cyber weapon that was ever used. Just a quick recap from part one. A pair of researchers at Sebentec are looking into the malware, and they just realize that the malware might have been created by a nation state. They think perhaps the U.S. government, but they're not 100% sure. They also believe they may have just sabotaged a covert mission by rerouting all the traffic to their internal computer. So the researchers were obviously concerned with what they had just figured out, but they felt as security professionals, it was their duty to continue looking into the malware and figuring out exactly what it did, regardless of the ramifications of it. As they reviewed the code, they continued to find interesting details about the malware. The malware wasn't just looking for Seisman Step 7 or the WinCC software, though. It was also looking for a specific line of Simon's hardware called PLCs, Programmable Logical Controls, used for managing industrial plants. And the exact lines were S7315 and the S7417. And only this combination of hardware and software would actually trigger their payload. And a payload is a component of attack which causes harm to the infected victim. Right. They also found additional zero-day exploits, not just one, but three additional ones, coming to a grand total of four zero-day exploits, all within just one virus, which had never been seen before. They also discovered that the virus would keep logs of all the computers it infected along the way. And the Symantec guys were able to see the exact path the virus took and was able to figure out what was considered ground zero, the first five infections. And the first five infections all occurred to organizations inside Iran. Each organization were involved in industrial control systems, and each of those orgs were clearly contractors working on the Nataz nuclear facility. So they also came to the conclusion that it took about three different teams to code all the malware. The first team was an elite team who worked on the payload. The second was a second-tier team responsible for spreading the virus. And the third team was the one with the least amount of skills, probably assigned to set up the command and control servers and, you know, handle the communication. And as they were reviewing the malware, they also noticed that there's several versions of it. And they started looking through the different versions and, and trying to figure out what the delta was between them. And what they came to the conclusion was the earlier versions were not as contagious, but they still had the same exact attack vector. The only major differences between the older versions and the newer versions was mostly on how contagious and how infectious the virus can become to other computers. The last version, which was version 1.1, was the one that had four zero-day exploits. It had multiple ways of spreading the virus. It had the stolen certificates, and it was also the version that was extremely noisy and caught the attention of everyone. And at first, it seemed like the hackers hadn't left any clues. But sometimes hackers can be somewhat arrogant and they'll drop little clues to show you who they are. And as they're reviewing their code, they notice that every single time a virus encountered a potential victim, before it would actually infect it, it would check for a magic string, which was 0x19790509. And if that string was found, the malware wouldn't infect that computer. And typically hackers would put these magic strings um, in place so that if the virus ever encounters their computer, their computer won't get infected, right? It's, an, it's, an, it's a way to safeguard themselves. 
And these magic strings can be any form of words or letters or whatever the hacker chooses. And they also noticed that the magic stream seemed to be some kind of date, May 9th, 1979. So they did a quick Google search to look up the importance of that date. And the search results revealed that there was a connection between Israel and Iran. The date, 1979, was a day a prominent Iranian uh, Jewish businessman called Habib Haganian was executed by the new Iranian government when they had just seized power through their revolution. You know, Habib was a very respected leader in the Jewish Iranian community, and his death marked a turning point in the relations between the Jewish community and the Iranian state. And as soon as Habib's execution occurred, um, the Jews were essentially kicked out of Iran into Israel, and it was this that essentially sparked the hostility between the two countries that remains up until today. Towards the end of 2010, the Semantic engineers made a public announcement on what they had learned about the malware. They notified everyone that the virus wasn't an espionage tool like everyone had originally thought, but it was actually a digital weapon designed to sabotage an industrial plant. So Iran had been pursuing nuclear weapons for years, but between 2000 and 2005, they accepted the terms of the UN and held off on developing their nuclear program. And this was only because they were a bit concerned that U.S. would end up invading them. But around 2006, the Iranians thought, nah, man, the, the U.S. is bogged down with wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they don't have the capacity to start another war with us. So right now, this is the perfect time to restart and re-kick off our nuclear program. Around this time, they started producing low-enriched uranium and started building and installing centrifuges at scale in their facility in Ataz. And their leader became to tell the UN and, you know, the rest of the world leaders as well that, no, I'm not backing down. And who are you to tell us if we can't have a nuclear program? And the Iranian public loved it. They were in complete support of that message. So by 2007, 2008, tensions were at an all time high. And Bush couldn't even come out in public and state the Iranians were building a nuclear weapon, especially because he had just stated the same thing about Iraq. And when we invaded, we came up empty handed. So he couldn't take any military action. Even Condoleezza Rice told him, Mr. President, I think you've invaded your last Muslim country, even for the best of reasons. And on top of that, Bush didn't want Israel to conduct any military operations either. And they had officially requested a green light to bomb the nuclear sites in Iran, which he was not in support of. Because if they did, the U.S. would end up being dragged into the middle of the war in order to support Israel. And obviously, Israel was much more concerned with Iranian's nuclear program than the U.S., just because of the region in which they're located, right? So Bush felt like he was somewhat stuck in a corner. So then he asked his intelligence leader to give him more options, because he didn't like the two options he currently had. Either he let them create a bomb, or we bomb them. The U.S. Cyber Command began testing their malware in a facility in Sandia, New Mexico. They had gone out and acquired the same centrifuges that the Iranians were using in their facilities. Centrifuges are metal cylinders with rotors inside that spin at around 63,000 RPM, and they do it in order to enrich uranium gas. And typically, natural uranium will only have about 0.72% of fissile isotope. That's not even 1%. And the rest of it will be non-fissile. And why is this important and why do you need fissile isotope? It's because fissile isotope U-235 is what's needed in order to create atomic energy. And it's also the primary fissile isotope that is used for fueling a nuclear weapon. Once the hackers were able to successfully destroy and blow up the centrifuges, they 
collected all the pieces. They put it on a plane. They took it directly to the White House. They laid out all the pieces on the conference room table in the Situation Room. And then they invited President Bush to come down and take a look. And this was when Bush was convinced that this could work. And he gave the project the green light. Around January 2010, the UN had sent in the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor Iran's nuclear program at the city of Nataz. And the nuclear facility at Nataz was in a bunker 50 feet underground, and it housed thousands of centrifuges. Now, the life expectancy of a centrifuge was about 10 years, but they are fragile and prone to break. So under normal condition, Iran has to replace up to 10% of the centrifuges a year due to defects. Iran had about 8,700 centrifuges installed in Ataz back in November 2009. So under normal conditions, 800 of them would need to be replaced over the course of a year. And the official report that the inspectors noted were that in the last six months, roughly around 900 to 1,000 had been damaged and replaced. But the unofficial number that everyone actually believes is true was that it was around 2,000 centrifuges that had been damaged. And the way the virus would actually damage it was, was quite interesting, actually. Centrifuges have electric rotors, and the PLC was used in order to control the speed of the electric rotors. Now, the virus wouldn't actually attack the rotors immediately. It would actually wait 13 days because it takes around 13 days to fill up the centrifuges with uranium gas. And during those 13 days, the virus record what normal operation metrics look like. So when the attack finally occurred, the virus would actually report that everything was functioning as expected on the computer. But the virus was actually breaking all the electric rotors. And as I mentioned earlier, normal operations for rotors was to spin at around 63,000 RPM. But the virus would actually speed up the rotors up to 80,000 RPM, which would cause the rotors to spin you know, uncontrollably and then shatter the centrifuges. Uh, another form of attack that the virus was, was performing was it would lower the RPM down to almost a standstill. This would cause the centrifuges to begin to wobble and essentially shatter and fall apart as well. And centrifuges can't just be immediately turned off. They have to have like a graceful shutdown in order to ensure the safety of the shutdown. And every single time the operators tried to do a, a graceful shutdown and hit that big red button, the virus would actually intercept that request and just do nothing and just continue doing whatever it was doing. Now, the operators and the engineers and Ataz must have been going insane, right? They, they really couldn't figure out what was going on. So everything seemed completely normal on the computer, but the centrifuges continued to break on a daily basis. And the U.S. knew that this was working, that the virus was working because they had intelligence contacts that would tell them that the Iranian scientists and operators were being fired because, you know, everyone assumed that it was an engineer or a scientist that was making the errors, which was causing the centrifuges to blow up. The virus was, was essentially working. It was blowing up centrifuges. It was slowing down Iran's nuclear plans. And also it was working as intended with leaving no trace. And around this time, Obama is now in office and, you know, he was provided constant updates on the virus's progress. He did voice some concerns around, you know, other nations, intelligence agencies acquiring the virus one day and be able to use it against the U.S. 
But obviously that concern wasn't strong enough to stop the program because he was in complete support of it from the start. And by mid-2010, the Israeli intelligence leader was under constant pressure by the prime minister to produce better results. And even though centrifuges were breaking at a quick and alarming rate, it just it wasn't good enough for the Israelis, and they believe Iran was nearly close to developing a nuclear weapon. And the Israeli intelligence leader directed his team to, to make the virus more infectious. They actually took the code, they made changes directly to the delivery of the virus, and then launched it without even checking with the U.S. And it was this last version that started causing the reboot issues on the computers at Ataz, and what caused everyone to realize that they had been hacked. Now, the Israelis had essentially rushed the malware development, and they created these, these issues and these bugs. This last version that they released became so infectious that it started infecting all the computers around the world. And the very code that was designed by the U.S. and the Israelis as a cyber weapon was, was now discovered not just by the Russians and the Chinese, but essentially everyone around the world. And Obama was obviously extremely upset when he found out that it had spread out throughout the world and essentially everyone had their hands on it now. The CIA has promised him that the virus wouldn't get out and that it would only infect the Iranian facilities and that the Iranians would never figure out that it was the U.S., all of which were not true. And they said that it would have a major effect on Iran's nuclear program. And in the end, it really didn't. The virus ended up backfiring on the U.S. and Israel. And not only did Iran continue and heavily invest into the nuclear program, now they had the cyber weapon as well that they could leverage against the U.S. All right, guys, thanks a lot for listening. That was the end of part two of the three-part series. Um, again, listen in to the third part where we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the virus and what it really meant for everyday people like you and I. All right, thanks a lot for listening, guys. Have a good rest of your day.